Have you noticed? <clears throat> there is a high fascination <clears throat> in our world, which we live, with other worlds. Movies, TV shows galore about creatures and planets and universes and galaxies beyond our own. A real fascination with all of that. UFOs, we used to say, now that the government's gotten, gotten involved, I, I guess we have to rename that to give it a little more credibility, I don't know. Unidentified aerial objects. I'm having trouble getting used to that. But there is that fascination with it. The, the government and others would like to know, have there, have there been alien craft hovering over our planet, surveying the planet for various reasons, perhaps? And whether you believe that or not, and I, I shouldn't say, whether you believe that or not, there is an invisible world, often much darker in our curiosities about that invisible world. Humankind, for the longest, and history proves this, humankind has been enamored with and concerned about another world, an invisible world. Uh, and for the most part, they're scared of it. They might think that, that it's inhabited by gods, deities of some sort, or or demons, or spirits, or maybe the devil, if, if they're a little closer to biblical language, perhaps. Most of the time, <clears throat> those beliefs have in them a battle scene of some sort, a war where good faces evil, and there's a conflict involved. And man is kind of caught in that. Man is kind of hopeless in that. Man is as he's, as he's shrouded in this darkness, there is a fear that goes with it. Because man doesn't think that he has much control over that other world. But I'm here to tell you that there is a biblical view that is accurate. We can, we can count on that. And it's important that you and I, Christians, not be so enamored with or interested in that which the world is interested in or has come up with, but what Scripture says. That needs to be our perspective, the biblical perspective. Beginning this morning, we're embarking on a sermon series from the book of Ephesians. It's entitled, Out of This World Life. Paul is going to talk about two worlds. He's going to talk about an invisible world and he's going to talk about a visible world. And of course, we're very familiar with the visible world. But why, why would he bring that up? What is the importance of knowing something about that invisible world that impacts how we behave ourselves or how we think about the visible world? How would it affect my perspective? How would it affect my behavior as we think about that? And I'm persuaded that we need that perspective. In fact, that's one of the reasons... I think that Sunday morning, anytime we're with the saints, is so important. Because through our songs, well, you were taken to another world, were you not, this morning in those songs? Some of them. And that's, that's what we need to be reminded of. So that in this world where we now live, we will live appropriately. We will have the right perspective that affects how we live. Over a period of, I, I suppose, 10 or 15 years, 
Paul has several encounters with the Ephesian church. He, he is forbidden to go there on his second missionary journey, but he comes back by on the way home. And I'm not quite sure from the text how much of the church is planted or what's already perhaps there, but there seems to be a group of believers there to some degree. But he comes back on his third journey, and he spends over two years there. He not only has converts among the Jewish people, but they are converts among the Gentiles. And from that hub, all Asia heard the word, Acts says, part of Western Turkey, present today. So it had a tremendous influence and a tremendous growth in a city that, hmm, very different, and had some things that related it to an invisible world. Paul goes on from there and goes finish, finishes his third journey, but, but before he does, I should go back, <clears throat> because you remember, <clears throat> excuse me, you remember the most uh, significant event there, and that was the riot in Ephesus, Acts 19. Great is Diana of the Ephesians, the Greek goddess of fertility. There was the church had made such an impact that, that they were causing some stir there, which was a good thing. But they were reaping some bad consequences from it. Paul will go on to, after he leaves there and moves on to another part of his life, he will write First and Second Timothy and, and he will write the Ephesian letter. And why would he write that Ephesian letter from a Roman prison to this church to talk to them in a way that we're going to talk about, an out-of-this-world world and life that affects the visible world, of which we're visibly very obvious. Why would he do that? Well, it appears that the Ephesians, the city, had a lot of nastiness in it, Gentile nastiness, but, but there was a lot of religious aspect to it as well. Cults, mystery cults. We're not going to go into all that, but, but those, those religious cults, particularly among the Gentiles, of course, they had these views of other worlds. They had this view of the invisible, and they had some very interesting and sometimes secretive dedication rites and ceremonies that went with those religions. Well, of course, some of those people were converted to Christ. But they're still going to remember some of those strange views and practices of the past. How are they going to look at that? Are they going to have that perspective of their new life? Or are they going to have a different perspective that Paul is going to bring to them? And really already has, I'm sure, while he was there. He's going to say, there truly is an unseen world. And he calls it the heavenlies. Literally, it's in the heavenlies. It's where we are. And he's, he's going to use that phrase five times, I think, in this book. It's spread throughout the book because he wants to remind them there is an invisible world, and I need you, Christians, to think about that invisible world in a particular way. And I think that's for us as well. Maybe we're not into as much superstition or control of that kind of cultural background as maybe they were, but we still have a, a visible life that we're so tied up in. And Paul says that visible world in which you're tied up in is to, be, is to be looked at a certain way. 
And you are to behave a certain way. You are to live or walk a certain way because you live in the heavenlies. So briefly, let's just look at those texts and see what Paul says about the heavenlies in which you and I dwell. Beginning the book in Ephesians chapter 1, he'll say, Paul, an apostle by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then here's his first reference, verse 3. Praise be to the God. Oh, I'm going to reread that. Some translations say praise, but really blessed is the better word here because you see that it's used three times in the verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, blessed us, Christians, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's quite a mouthful. Christ is in the heavenly, in the heavenlies. He's going to say more about that. All spiritual blessings are in the heavenly. He says, we're blessed. That's, that's where we are. That's where all the true blessings are. It's not in some strange, out-of-the-way, invisible thing that you've been talked to about in the past. That's not where it is. That's not where the blessings are. Don't go there. Don't search there. Oh, in this visible world, when you might be tempted to find your blessings in status, stuff, and sin, it's not there. That's not where the true spiritual blessings are. One of the commentaries I read, read it this way. These spiritual blessings, he said, he's given us every spiritual enrichment that we need for the spiritual life. I like the way he says that. We've got everything we've we've been needing to live the kind of life that we now have in Christ Jesus. So what kind of blessings are those? All kinds of spiritual blessings. He doesn't even elaborate. He just kind of leaves that to what you think about. Think about all the spiritual blessings that you have and guess where they are. They're in Christ Jesus in the heavenly realms. And that's where we are as well. You're in the heavenly realms along with all those spiritual blessings. Tell me more, Paul. We're not only blessed in the heavenly realms, we are victorious and particularly victorious with Christ in the heavenly realms. Chapter 1, verse 19. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So where is Jesus seated at the right hand of God? We kind of know that from other passages. But he adds this text here that, that he wants to use in Ephesians. He's in the heavenly realms, that invisible world that you don't necessarily see with your visible eyes. But following that up, he includes us as well. Chapter 2, verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father and sat down at his right hand, In the heavenly realms, when you and I came forth from our resurrection in baptism, he says, God seated you there as well. Again, I don't understand that totally, but it sure sounds good, because that means I'm where Christ is. And that's in that invisible heavenly realm 
next to God. That sounds like I'm victorious. Just as Christ was victorious over the grave and sin and death, we are victorious. And that's the sense. It's not a ticker tape parade. It's not medals we hang on our chest. It's not enemies defeated. It's not making the most money. It is found in having Christ. It's found in having that life that God intended to give us. A life that is seated. That's kind of the idea of victorious right there. We're seated. God, Christ is seated because he won. We are seated with him because we have won. But then there's more. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, he says his intent was that now, through the church, the wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what I'm taking away from that. He's saying that while you're on the earth, Christians, those of you that have been raised and are seated in the heavenly realms with Christ, you are the church on the earth. And you are the proclaiming agent of this victory in Christ. You are the demonstration agent of this victory in Christ. What do I mean by demonstration? Paul talks in this book, particularly in chapter 2, about the coming together of all peoples, Jew and Gentile, once enemies, once alienated from each other, but now the mystery of the gospel is that Christ has brought together all peoples in one body, which is the church, which is you and I. That we of all ages, that we of all backgrounds, that we of all nationalities can come together in peace and harmony And with purpose, the same as the Lord Jesus, in one body, the church proclaims what cannot happen on earth by men's inventions and institutions. A unity, a strength, a relationship with Christ that you can't find anywhere else. And in some sense, we not only are the on-earth proclamation of those truths, but in some sense we are a prophecy of if you want to use that word, we're a premonition of the eternal world, the invisible world that awaits us when this one is no more. That is our status, an invisible world where we are seated with Christ, but we are here on this earth. Sounds like we're kind of partaking of two worlds, doesn't it? But we have to have the right perspective. Tell me more, Paul. He says in chapter 6, verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In this out-of-this-world life, there are powers and authorities. mentioned that a little bit earlier about the church proclaiming truth to those rulers and authorities. But now he gets down to business. He says, this is the dark part of that realm. It sounds like everything so far is really, really positive and it's all, it's all good stuff there. And then he says, no, 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 don't, don't forget there's a struggle there. There is the devil and his angels. There is an invisibility of that. And there's a struggle there. While you're in this visible world, 
the struggle will continue and be intense in the invisible world. I'm not sure I know what all that means. I'm not sure scripture tells us just a huge amount about that. I mean, I think of the Job scene where Job and God are having this conversation about Job. Did I say Job? God and the devil are having this conversation about Job. Is that conversation taking place about you? Are are you allowed to be treated by the devil according to God in, in an invisible way that you didn't even know about? Perhaps. I think about the intense struggle between Christ and the devil in the garden as we sang Night with Eben Pinion. The struggle there. And there the devil literally comes to him. He doesn't come to us that way, as you know. It's an invisible way. But that's the struggle we're talking about. I think about the Revelation book. It talks about that struggle on a, on a visible scene way, but, but maybe more of an invisible scene way with apocalyptic language. I think back to the book of Daniel, where the archangel Michael is involved in a conflict. It's behind the scenes. It's that struggle of which Paul mentions is going on here in chapter 6, verse 12. And no wonder he will say, while you're in this world, you better put on the armor of God. You better put on the spiritual armor of God to be successful in that battle. Since that world that we've talked about in the heavenly realms is invisible, since there is significant mystery about it, even with these revelations, it's only natural that we should be curious. And again, we're not given a whole lot, but I do know this. I do know that all spiritual blessings are there. That's where I want to be, isn't it? Where you want to be? That's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's where I'm seated. The struggle that's going to take place there, I'm given all the armor that I need to fight that battle. I'm a part of the church, which is the declaring and, and, and demonstrating power of that in this world. But now, because that's true, I need you, Paul, to tell me how to walk in this world. I need you to tell me how to live in the visible world, because that's That's what I see. That's what I taste. That's what I feel. The last half of this book, as it were, uses this word, sometimes translated walk, sometimes translated live. I'm going to use the word live, except for one text I'll show you. But basically, that's what Paul is saying. Because you live in the invisible heavenly realms, and you need to think on those things, This is the way you need to walk in the visible world. But before you get there, you have to remember where you used to live. Paul will say in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. You used to live when you lived in this world. When When you followed the ways of this life, when you were gratifying the cravings of your sinful nature, when you were following the ruler of this world, the prince of air, as it were, that's how you used to live. But that's not how you live now. He'll go on in the text of chapter 2, verse 10, and he says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do, one translation says. 
But one translation says, which God intends for us to walk, because the word walk is there. The word live is there. That's kind of the umbrella of what he's going to say in this book. Because God prepared you for this, this is the way you're to live. Tell me more, Paul. Well, you're to live a worthy life. Chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy, worthy of the calling you have received. He did call us. He called us out of that darkness and that transgression. He called us out of that invisible world that was not right and was nasty and was inhabited by all kinds of bad things that you were participating in in this life. Now he's called you out of that. The word worthy means honor. And I think what he's saying here is you, you need to act like a good child. You need to reflect upon the father who called you. Upon the big brother who saved you. It is no more shame for a parent than to see their children live in a way that doesn't reflect the values and the sense of goodness that they would have given them as a parent. And that is true of God as well. In this particular text, he'll say, let me tell you what a worthy life is all about. It's about a life of humility. It's about a life of unity. It's about a life of maturity in the body of Christ. More about that as we study it. But then he tells them, you need to live a pure life. Chapter 4, verse 17, so I tell you this and insist on the Lord that you no longer live as the, as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Paul calls them to not go back to the low life. And what I mean by that is when you live that previous life, Christian life before you became a Christian, Ephesians, you, you followed animal instincts. You, you let the flesh tell you what to do. It dominated your life. You let it have whatever you wanted it to have. That even spilled over not only from sexual immorality, but also how you relate to other people. No more anger and rancor. No more treating people with revenge. That's partaking of the lusts of the flesh. No, it's more about forgiveness. It's more about compassion. It's more about treating others the way you would want to be treated. More about that in another lesson. But then he's going to tell them, you need to live a love life. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering... And sacrifice to God. You know what that Greek word for love is, don't you? You know that it's agape. It is not eros, which is to let the flesh have whatever it wants. No, not that kind of love. It is agape that says, I will do for you what is best for you. I will do a love that doesn't just gather to me what I want. No, it's changed completely from your previous life. It is a life of love. Not only in the sexual area, but it's in all areas of life. It looks toward your other relationships and it says, what I will do is best for you. More about that. But once again, why are these things true, Paul says? Because we live in the heavenly realms. But then he says, you need to live a lighted life. Chapter 5, verse 8. For you were once darkness... 
But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. The emphasis of this section seems to be about being seen by others as light. Allowing Christ's light to shine through us. We know Christ was the light of the world. We know that he says that we are the light of the world. And that we should shine that light so that people will see. They'll see God because they will glorify God who is in heaven. So when we shine, sorry, when we live a lighted life, people begin to see through us into the heavenly realms where they've never seen that kind of truth before. Our lighted lives, our out-of-this-world lives, as it were, should cause people to question where that light is coming from and why it makes you think the way you do and live the way you do. But then, finally, he says, you need to live a wise life. Be very careful, then, how you live or how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. He says, don't be foolish. Don't be foolish in how you act or how you speak. Every opportunity that you have to do something should be good should be unselfish, should be for others, should be for the glory of God. Don't mess it up. When you're in relationships, and this is an extended section in the book, you live wisely with your marital partners. You live wisely with your children. You live wisely with the people with whom you work or your neighbors next door. Don't unnecessarily create friction. You're not interested in a TV show like Neighborhood Wars, are you? That just makes the Lord's work through us more difficult for those people to see. And where'd that wisdom come from? Where are we going to know that wisdom? What's its source? The heavenly realms. Because that's a life that works. That's a life that brings about peace to relationships. It doesn't bring about gun violence. It doesn't bring about personal wars. It doesn't bring about national conflicts. It is a life that benefits others, not that which takes from others. We're going we're gonna to sort of work that out in the next few couple of months, I suppose, as we look at Ephesians in more depth. But that's the big picture. That's what you need to remember. So how did the Ephesians do? How did the Ephesians do? Now, Paul had warned them. He'd warned the elders in Acts chapter 20. You you need to watch out for false teachers that will come in and try to mess this thing up. And, And what we read in Revelation, which is the last message about that church that we have in the New Testament, it's it's maybe 30 years later, okay? How have they done in 30 years? John, the writer of Revelation, will say, You seem to have done a good job about resisting false teachers. You you don't withstand them. But there's a problem. You've left your first love. That's more at the core problem than even what they seemingly outward would do in withstanding false teachers. That's more crucial. I, I wonder. I don't know what all John means by that, that they've left their first love. But could it include that in one generation, 30-ish years, 
that church had forgotten the exhortation of Paul that you live in the heavenlies. That the way you think about the invisible world will decide how you live in the visible world. I suppose that's a warning to us. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. But while we're here, we need this two-world perspective that I think coming together like this reminds us of with song, scripture, and so forth. And it is this out-of-this-world perspective that causes us the following. Paul's going to tell other churches about the same thing. He says to the Colossian church, Since then you have been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms, as the Ephesian writer would say. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And then he's going to tell the Corinthian church about the same thing. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So where are your eyes focused today? Where is your mind centered? Where is your heart yearning? In a daily routine of some kind? Are you lost in the visible? Or do you remember where you truly live in the invisible that affects everything you think and everything you do in this visible world? Well, that's a challenge. It's not easy to do, is it? Those of us who've been trying to live that for a long time, and thank God we have the help of the Spirit when we became a Christian, raised to walk a new life. And if you haven't started that journey, if you haven't set your heart on things above, that's where you start. Faith that Jesus indeed was raised from the dead. He was the sacrifice for our sins as we celebrated. He is coming back someday. And we are seated with him as Christians. Don't you want to make that first step while we stand and sing?